possible, does these days. Uh, but he has a very uh, busy job in teaching in schools, ethic and logic and how to marshal arguments and how to put in your case across. You may have opinions, but how to uh, discuss your opinions and get them over. So it's, it's a lot of philosophy and logic and ethics in his work in schools and universities. So, very welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. For us. And interesting topic. We had never heard of this sort of before, but I mean, <laughs> he suggested, well, what about that? So that's still wonderful that you uh, I'll hand over to you. Marvelous. We'll finish at about, uh, well, it'll be 25 past, and people can go uh, in time they like after that, please, and we'll discuss it. Right. <coughs> well, I'm, I'm sort of assuming that most people will already know who C.S. Lewis uh, is, if only through uh, his Chronicles of Narnia children's books. Uh, but he's also, apart from that, very well known uh, as a, a Christian apologist, that is someone who uh, makes public arguments uh, in defence of Christianity being true and rational and all of that. And um, he was uh, uh, an Oxford and then a Cambridge professor, he uh, trained, indeed, in philosophy and taught philosophy for a while at Oxford before uh, becoming a professor of uh, English literature, uh, which is what he did for, for most of his career, but he did have a, a background in philosophy. Uh, as to the new atheists, uh, which was a, a term uh, coined in a magazine article by Gary Wolfe to describe um, the sort of cluster of um, public atheist writings that came out um, from about 2005 onwards, from people like Richard Dawkins, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, A.C. Grayling, etc., um, who um, one might describe um, as, uh, some of them have described themselves as being not merely atheists, but anti-theists, uh, as distinguished from what I suppose, non-pejoratively, we could now call the classical old atheists, uh, the new atheists not only think that um, religious beliefs are uh, intellectually mistaken, but that they are uh, morally and socially dangerous, um, so, such that religion is, is an evil, a social evil to be fought against, as, as well as merely an intellectual mistake to be corrected, uh, as it were. That's kind of their position, I think. And um, most of uh, today's famous new atheist writers... Um, had their education at Oxford University and did their doctorates under the tutelage of people who would have been colleagues of C.S. Lewis in his day. They're sort of one um, intellectual generation uh, removed from him. And Lewis is interesting, of course, from the, from the fact that he was someone who uh, was an atheist who gradually uh, became a Christian uh, through a series of um, arguments that he met through various uh, friends that he met at Oxford University that gradually convinced him away from a, a materialistic atheist worldview towards some sort of pantheistic and then theistic view, and then a couple of years after that uh, to a Christian uh, theistic view of things. So uh, in my recent book, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist, I, I kind of trace the course of the the arguments that made Lewis change his mind and ask, well, what do today's new atheists have to say in response to those arguments that changed Lewis's mind and uh, sort of who would have the better of the debate, as it were? Uh, and you may think I'm biased, and of course I am because everyone is, um, but I think that Lewis would have the, the better of the argument here, particularly since some of the arguments that he really uh, grappled with seriously... Um, 
are arguments that the new atheists show no sign of actually even having heard of, um, let alone grapple seriously with, um, partly because uh, the new atheists tend to have a very narrow view of knowledge and are very disparaging towards philosophy as a subject. Um, they're, they're so obsessed with the, the power of science to let us know things about reality um, that they uh, uh, kind of have this sort of, well, philosophy is dead, science is the new way to sort of know everything about everything kind of attitude. So that's a bit of background there. And I've, I've uh, been asked to talk on what would C.S. Lewis specifically say to Richard Dawkins. And I have a number of topics to go through. And we'll see how many I get through in the time uh, <laughs> before we have some Q&A. I might not, I might not get through this whole list. Um, but I think in particular, uh, Lewis would pick up on uh, Dawkins for having a number of self-contradictory um, viewpoints um, that he argues for. And in philosophy, it doesn't get worse than having a self-contradictory viewpoint. It's a bit like claiming to have met a married bachelor or to have stubbed one's toe against a square circle. Um, <laughs> uh, that's just not a reasonable sort of thing to claim because they uh, are internally inconsistent. And I think uh, Richard Dawkins has a number of internal inconsistencies in his viewpoint that uh, Lewis would pick up on. So a self-contradictory view of faith and knowledge, of freedom and responsibility, of ethics and of Jesus. But we'll see how many we, we get through. Uh, so let's start with the, the ideas about faith and knowledge. And as I said, the New Atheists, and, and Dawkins is a prime example of this, uh, are people that we would describe as subscribing not to, not to science, but to scientism. Scientism is this idea that science is the be-all and end-all of knowing things about reality. Um, you give exclusive or near-exclusive rights over knowledge to sort of empirical, ultimately sensory uh, verification, hence the magnifying glass there. Uh, so according to Richard Dawkins, for example, all beliefs fall into one of two categories, and that is, on the one hand, what he calls proper evidence-based belief, uh, and on the other hand, blind faith as if blind were a sort of redundant qualifier for the term faith, because he kind of thinks that faith is blind faith, that that's the same thing. Um, he says faith is believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. If there were a scrap of evidence, it wouldn't be faith. Um, so um, that's his sort of... There are two types of people, kind of categorisation. Uh, whereas C.S. Lewis, for example, said that faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Uh, that faith was, was more to do with uh, fighting against temptations to be disinterested or uh, against one's uh, motivations, psychological motivations, against believing what you knew to be true. Uh, was being sort of faithful to what you knew on other grounds. Um, or having being faithful towards a person uh, would be a good analogy. A good translation of uh, the biblical concept of faith would be trust. And to know that someone trusts someone else doesn't settle the issue of do they have good grounds for their trust or not. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But just because they have trust doesn't automatically mean that their trust is, is um, a sort of misplaced and ill-grounded trust. So Lewis, in one famous passage, says this. He says, now I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. 
But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Um, unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. Just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. A lovely turn of phrase. He is, of course, a very good uh, turner of a phrase. Lewis would also, I think, note that Dawkins has far too narrow, this scientific narrow understanding of knowledge. The, the scientific demand, uh, they have this sort of idea that every rational belief, if your belief is going to be rational, that can only be because it's backed up by evidence. Because you have rational beliefs, they're the ones backed up by evidence, and everything else is blind faith. Um, but this demand, every rational belief must be justified or backed up by evidence, is self-contradictory. Because it entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied. It's like, well, why should I believe this? Or because it's backed up by evidence. But why should I believe it is backed up by evidence and that that evidence is really reliable? Why should I... I should only believe that if I have evidence for it, obviously. Otherwise, it's blind faith, isn't it? You know, you've got to have evidence. But then I'd have to have evidence for the evidence for the evidence and evidence for the evidence for the evidence for the evidence. And I'm just kind of digging myself into a bottomless pit that I can't ever climb out of by making that kind of demand. It's also a claim that's open to obvious counterexamples, I think. I mean, the claim, um, in order to rationally believe something, you must have evidence for it. Well, what about the claim, rainbows are beautiful? I'll just look at a rainbow and go, that's beautiful. Do I need evidence for it beyond just the experience of it? Or the claim... Um, torturing small children just for fun is wrong. <laughs> I, you know, I think I know that, but is it something that I know because I've got evidence for it? Indeed, I, it, it would seem to be the sort of thing, moral claims, that you can't have scientific evidence for. Science will tell me if I put lots of arsenic in Aunt Mabel's teapot this afternoon, I'll stand a good chance of inheriting her country estate, <laughs> relatively soon, you know. But no amount of science or empirical investigation will tell me whether or not that's a nice thing to do, whether I'm obligated to do it or not. You know, So it just seems obvious that there are things that we do know, even things that you need to know in order to do science, such as the laws of logic are reliable, and you should use the laws of logic when arguing. Um, but there's an instance of something not only that you know without science, but you, you cannot argue for. You can't argue for the idea that the laws of logic are reliable, because any argument you gave for that conclusion would have to assume the laws of logic in the process of producing an argument for it. So you'd be arguing in a circle and begging the question, and you know that's frowned upon. But nevertheless, you know, I know that the law of non-contradiction is true, it's just obvious. So, as Lewis put it, um, you cannot produce rational intuition, these rational insights that all reasoning depends upon, by argument, because argument depends upon rational intuition. Trusting your rational intuitions, i.e. having faith in your rational intuitions about things. Proof rests upon the unprovable, which just has to be seen. Um, so, this Dawkins-esque distinction between Reasonable beliefs, they're the ones based on evidence, and everything else which is just unreasonable blind faith is far too 
simplistic. Uh, even as an atheist, Lewis rejected this kind of scientistic approach to knowledge, um, saying it, this uh, distinction between scientific and non-scientific thoughts won't, won't easily bear the, the weight we're attempting to put on it. And that rejection of scientism left him open to considering philosophical, metaphysical arguments for God seriously. He had to wrestle with those arguments, whereas the new atheists don't, don't really seriously wrestle with the philosophical arguments. They kind of dismiss them as being irrelevant and not worth addressing because they're not scientific enough. So what about uh, freedom and responsibility? Uh, Lewis, a couple of quotes here, clearly believed in, in free will. He says, you know, the law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them. But the law of the moral law tells you uh, what human beings ought to do and ought not to do. Not what they do do, how they actually behave, but how they should behave. So there's a difference between a sort of natural physical law and a natural moral law. Uh, now, here is, just in summary, the typical kind of naturalistic argument against free will. And I think it's a very strong argument. Um, think this through. If, you said that if these two claims, one and two, are true, then number three must be true. That just follows logically from it. Um, so, uh, purely physical systems behave according to the laws of physics, and so lack libertarian free will. Purely physical things don't make choices or intend to do things. They just do things. The stone just drops. It doesn't intend to drop or choose to follow the law. <laughs> you know. Um, but secondly, if you also claim that human beings are purely physical systems, well then of course it follows that human beings, being purely physical systems, which lack free will, so human beings lack free will. That seems to be a, be a very powerful argument. Um, the only way to escape it is to deny one of the premises. Which, you know, and it seems highly implausible to me to think that purely physical systems do, do have free will. You know, maybe next time an apple falls on your head when you're in an orchard, you should blame the apple. Say so that was very naughty, you know. Um, that seems highly implausible. <laughs> so where would I reject you know, I would reject premise two and say, well, I think human beings are more than just physical objects. You know, um, that would let me believe in free will. But here's, here's Dawkins's kind of view. He's, he's very, uh, I'm going to at least um, praise Dawkins for sort of consistently working through his worldview assumption. And he'll say things like this, you know, human brains, though they may not work in the same way as man-made computers, are as surely governed by the laws of physics. So isn't the murderer just a machine with a defective component? Um, doesn't a mechanistic view of the nervous system, of what a person is, make nonsense of the very idea of responsibility? Any crime is in principle to be blamed on antecedent conditions acting through the accused's physiology and heredity and environment and so on. Why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing? Um, and you can see underlying that kind of viewpoint is this kind of argument. And I kind of say, well, yeah, if I started where you do, I would be forced, logically, to end up where you do. But it just seems to me so obvious that where you end up is wrong, because you can't say 
torturing small children for fun is something you ought not to do. <laughs> that, that if you do it, you are responsible in a way that makes you morally blameworthy for doing it. It says, well, no one's morally blameworthy for anything. It's like, really? You know, you really live with that? So I would sort of backtrack in the other direction. You can run the... Cons- it's consistent either way, but which is the, mo- the most plausible concept, the idea that physical reality is all that there is, that people are just chunks of matter, or the idea that the Holocaust was wrong. You know, and, and there is actually a, 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 a contradiction that you can bring out between those, and you want to have a consistent view, sure. And I think Dawkins's view is consistent at that level, but I think it's highly implausible. Um, so I would, I think, uh, pose this question, or I think Lewis, believing in free will, would, would pose this. If, if everything about a person is, as, Lewis, as Dawkins says, governed by the laws of physics... Blaming them for their intellectual failings, such as, say, having blind faith. You know, you don't have to have blind faith in order to be religious, but there certainly are religious people who don't think about it enough. Um, maybe that's an intellectual failing. But how could you blame them for it? Um, how, that would make as much sense as Newton blaming gravity for giving him an apple-sized bump on the head. Um, how can anyone, for example, Christians, be responsible for not living up to their intellectual obligations, as Dawkins says, if they aren't free to be responsible for anything? And pretty obviously I think the answer there is they can't. Um, So if Dawkins were being consistent with his rejection of of free will, although elsewhere he does talk about free will, but he says, I I admit there's something of a contradiction there, he, he really, to be consistent, ought not to say, it's very naughty of these Christians not, not to have evidence-based belief. Because, <laughs> according to his worldview, they can't help it. You know. <laughs> Indeed, how could anyone feel an intellectual obligation to agree with a worldview like Dawkins is that denies any reality to intellectual obligations? How can he say to me, because the arguments are in my favour, you ought to agree with me. Come on, be reasonable. As if I was like my fault that I'm not being reasonable. But according to his view, nothing's my fault. <laughs> so... How does he square that circle? (laughs) On ethics, again, you can see how this then shaves into ethics. Dawkins is a constant moraliser, especially against the evils of religion. And, of course, there are plenty of evils of religion. It's just that, actually, it's people are are evil, and whether they're religious or not do nasty things. Uh, But Dawkins' uh, scientism leads him to reject the objective reality of moral values, um, so that it's not something we discover to be true about reality. Uh, morals are just things that we uh, sort of invent. They're socio-cultural, maybe the beneficial spin-off of our evolutionary history, that it's, it's useful that we behave that way because it tends to perpetuate the species. But then that begs the whole question of, well, is it a good thing that we perpetuate the species or not? You can't sort of just smuggle in the moral assumptions. So Dawkins, for example, says this. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but just pitiless indifference. It's just the, me- the machine of, of reality grinding on. Or he says there's a, a non and again, it's like there are two categories, a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, 
factual matters and ideas about what we ought to do. Normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning, says Richard Dawkins. Moral ideas have no meaning. So, okay, in the God Delusion, he says Hitler and Stalin were, by any standard, spectacularly evil men. But of course, he doesn't think there are any objective standards. He doesn't mean it. And he's told us that he doesn't mean it. So later on in the same book, when he says faith is an evil, precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument, remember, he doesn't mean it. <laughs> so, again, you could, you could put this as a sort of question. He's saying, um, on the one hand, he's saying, we've, we have an objective moral obligation to oppose religion because it's an objectively bad thing that it encourages people to ignore their intellectual moral obligations. But there are no objective moral values. Whereas for Lewis, even as an atheist, the thing that, that he wrestled with most in, in, in terms of coming to believe in a god is the problem of evil, which is a problem for him precisely because Lewis, even as an atheist, thought that value was an objective reality, that evil was real. Uh, a real thing, as he says, a thing that is really there, not made up by ourselves. So he said, several years before I read Lucretius, I felt the force of his argument. Surely the strongest of all for atheism, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. And this ancient Greek poet who just expresses the, the classical problem of, of evil. Um, you know, if there was a God worthy of the name, he shouldn't allow, he really shouldn't allow this. But it is here, so there can't be any God <coughs> worthy of the name. But that whole argument, as Lewis came to see, depended upon thinking there really was objective value, things that you would want, want to claim, God really shouldn't do that. That really is a bad thing. And as soon as you say, well, that nothing's objectively good or bad, your whole foundation for the argument sort of collapses. He says, if, if nature, says Lewis, if the space-time matter system is the only thing in existence then, of course, there can be no other source for our standards. They come from the system. They must, like everything else, be the unintended and meaningless outcome of blind forces. All that we say about nature read in tooth and claws, quite inexplicable on the theory that we are simply natural creatures. If this world's the only world, how do we come to find its laws, either so dreadful or so comic? If there's no straight line elsewhere, how do we discover that nature's line is crooked? What's the standard that we're appealing to when we're saying this reality falls short of what should be? If the only reality there is is this one, and this is where we get our standards from, how come we're able to sit in judgment over the system? Um, so he's really arguing, look, if, if metaphysical naturalism is true, then nothing is objectively evil. And Richard Dawkins, notice, agrees with that premise. He explicitly says, I think that's true. So you only have to combine one with the claim that something is objectively evil to derive logically the conclusion, therefore, metaphysical naturalism is false. <laughs> and again, it's, which is more plausible, that naturalism is true or that there are some moral things that are really good or bad. Uh, I think I've run out of my allotted time, so uh, I will not uh, 
simply uh, sweep on through. Uh, I will give you a, a reason to go onto Amazon and purchase a copy of my book. <laughs> and it is available on Kindle, yes, even cheaper on Kindle from Amazon. Uh, and there's a chapter on there about uh, Lewis's uh, famous uh, lunatic liar lord, sometimes called Trilemma Argument, and how the people like Dawkins fail to really respond to that argument but let me you, you can ask me questions about it but I'm not going to steamroll it on through <laughs> our question time so. can you explain a couple of words again sure about metaphysical mm. naturalism what did you mean I, I miss now okay so uh, you usually add the term um, metaphysics just means beyond meta beyond physics mm. so physics is the study of how the basic constituents of the material reality work Metaphysics is the philosophical discipline that asks questions ab about what is the nature of reality. So would Dawkins agree that there is such a thing as metaphysics? Um, he, he might give a sort of begrudging acknowledgement uh, to metaphysics. Um, it's just that he would think the way to answer those questions is actually by using scientific methods and that um, if you think you can justify your, your answer to your metaphysical questions through non-scientific means, he would look down on that and he would think, well, you know, science, because it has answered so many other questions, it's shown itself to be reliable uh, in, our, in a whole sort of swathe of, of previous cases, we should rely on that for everything. Um, I think that would be his basic attitude there. A new atheist like Peter Atkins would be is even more extreme. Peter Atkins, chemist from Oxford Uni, and he would really say, you know, philosophy is 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 useless, is dead. Science is the only way to know anything. Um, philosophers are just a waste of space. You know. Um, so, metaphysical naturalism, that naturalism is the same as metaphysics? Naturalism is basically the same thing as materialism. Oh. It would be another word for materialism. The idea that, that nature, as we now use the word in the modern sense, is all that there is. Mm. Um, but, of course, as Lewis himself points out, these words have a history to them. Nature originally just meant what something is like. Such that, of course, you can talk about well, what's God's nature, um, without implying that He's a material object. Um, but if you talk about uh, an, um, uh, you know a, a nature documentary, we would all immediately, in a modern context, understand oh, it's a documentary about the biological world. <laughs> or um, I'm, I'm a naturalist, not a naturist. That's a different thing. <laughs> Well, if you know, someone says, oh, yes, I, I, I'm a professional naturalist, you know, oh, they're someone who studies the, the physical world. Um, so that's just how moderns have come to, to use the term. But, uh, yeah. There have been some experiments on um, people um, observing things or making decisions mm. where they seem to be finding things like the... Um, decision is made in their brain or something's happening mm. before they actually think they're making it as if maybe they haven't <coughs> thought very well 
Yes, these are particularly some experiments. They're called the Libet um, experiments after the psychologist who performed them, but they're they're very controversial, um, both in in terms of other groups who've tried to replicate um, the results, uh, in terms of the, the the measurements involved and the interpretation of the data. Um, so I, I could I could punt you forward to some literature on that, but there have even been um, sort of articles appearing in places like Life Scientist and New Scientist and so on, um, Life Science, um, saying that other groups performing this experiment have, have questioned those results. Um, Richard Swinburne, famous Oxford philosopher, has just brought out a, a new book on um, defending free will in which he um, looks at some length at those particular uh, experiments on so Richard Richard Swinburne, yeah. um, and yeah, I think you can find some of his recent lectures on that topic on YouTube mm-hmm. as well, which might be an interesting place to go to. He's a he's a fairly academic um, Oxford uh, philosopher, but he he deals very methodically and carefully uh, with these kind of things. Yeah, and um, uh, I would not be um, personally impressed with those kind of claims. Yeah. yeah. I went to um, a talk by Anthony Grayling mm. at Salisbury Festival recently, and he was um, presenting his arguments in favour of humanism. Mm-hmm. Um, it all sounded very plausible and far less sort of aggressive than Dawkins. Mm. Dawkins oh, yeah. seems to be a bit over the top, very critical of religion, and, mm. and he wasn't at all. He was just saying, well, look, you know, mm. this is why I'm a humanist, and these are the reasons, and, well, yes, other people might believe that, but... This is why I do this, mm-hmm. and it, we felt, oh yes, that's a very good argument. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so, again, AC Groening, <clears throat> fascinatingly, he he just brought out a, a book um, looking at the arguments for God and then defending humanism, mm. and um, I had a pleasure of having a debate with him on Premier Christian Radio a couple of months ago, discussing the part of his book on the on the arguments for God. Um, on um, Justin Briley's unbelievable show, which is also available as a podcast. Um, <laughs> and there are even some clips on YouTube. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I found him entirely charming in, per- in person, engaging on the arguments rather than um, sort of missing the, the point, as it were, sort of red herrings and so on. But um, I would simply think that the responses that he makes to the argument were inadequate or, or that he had sort of not really grasped what was being argued in a particular case. Um, so, particularly even on the, the, the moral argument for God, which was something that weighed heavily with, with Lewis, having sort of come to this realisation that, hang on, I can only use the problem of evil argument if I think there's a real sort of standard of goodness. But then what worldview does the existence of an objective standard of goodness to whom, to which, to whom I am obligated, how can I be obligated to something that's less than personal, Um, doesn't that start to sound a lot like God, kind of thing, Um, to which Anthony Grayling, along with many new atheists, will sort of say, well, you know, how how dare you sort of imply that atheists can't be good people, or that atheists can't know the difference between right and wrong. Sorry, that was not the argument. It wasn't that you can't be a good person without believing in God, or you can't, you know, know that you ought to love your children if you're an atheist or whatever. It's that you can't give a philosophical explanation 
of why there should be such a thing as a moral value. What sort of thing is it and where does that fit in your worldview? You know? um, so there he was sort of, we were talking a little bit at cross purposes, but uh, yeah, he, he certainly not, not the most antagonistic of, of neo-atheist representatives, yeah. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you for breakfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for opening um, up some <laughs> fresh avenues for us. Grand. I find it fascinating. Uh, you, know, I, you may have noticed I'm, I'm, I'm recording for, for yeah. podcasting, so I should mention to all of you, in case you want to say, I definitely don't want my voice online. I only broadcast my talk rather than the, the q and I'm happy to do that if anyone uh, wants to, uh, to say that. But then you can look up online on uh, iTunes, for example, or the Damaris website that I work for, the Damaris Trust, and uh, Peter S. Williams' podcast, and this and other talks of similar ilk are available. Well, sorry, you're a smaller group than you normally... That's, that's fine. It's, it's very affable to just pop up to Winchester on a <laughs> Saturday morning, have breakfast in the garden, meet some new people. Very nice, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it? Because there seems to be quite an interesting conflict between your sort of physical world and trying to derive arguments about what's right and wrong from that, mm. and also the moral world and how you go about defining that. I mean, I'm sort of, yeah, we're all used to the world of physics sort of describing mm. things in a very sort of small self-contained system, but, you know, that doesn't sort of seem to actually describe our sort of, you know, our moral thought mm. processes about what's right and what's wrong. And it seems to be that, you know, uh, I think you pointed out sort of mm. fairly well, you know, if you try and sort of combine sort of two um, ideas and mm. two sort of statements and you try and put them together, then you end up with something which is a non-sequitur. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think it's an interesting sort of argument that, that's come up there. And, you know, you sort of wonder, well, what's Dawkins' view on, on a sort of moral code? Mm. And how would he go about defining one? Yeah. Well, it's very interesting because he says... You know, I'm a, he's a passionate Darwinian, but he says, of course, that doesn't entail social Darwinianism. It doesn't entail the idea that we all ought to live according to the law of the jungle. And he says he's very against that idea, and that we should sort of rise above our evolutionary origins. Mm-hmm. Although he doesn't sort of say how we do that, or where we get the standards mm-hmm. from by which we make those judgments. It, it, it's just sort of... Uh, indeed, he says, you know, were someone to come into my house and you know, sort of burgle me, I, I, he, he actually says, I would be hard put to have a, an argument with them that that was wrong. I would simply say to them, you can't get away with that in this society and call the police. Mm. Which sounds very much like the law of the jungle. That's like, might makes right. You know, you can't get away with that. Mm. Well, what if they could? Mm. You know, if he sort of admits that he, he doesn't have a, a basis for making that sort of argument upon. He's... Mm. And he says he sort of seems happy enough to say, "Well, we don't we don't have to live according to the law of the jungle just because that's the way that we've come about." Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's true. You know, having a materialistic worldview doesn't imply that you ought to be a moral monster, but then it doesn't imply that you ought not to be 
a moral monster. He doesn't imply anything, ethically speaking, and I think that's the, the difficulty. It's not that the moral argument is saying, you know, atheists will be worse people than people who believe in God, or won't won't be able to behave nicely or mm. anything. It's, it's, it's really this question of, well, are there mm. when we you know, talk about clear examples of course there are hard cases, but when we talk about clear examples of moral mm. statements, yes. are they just things that we have invented <laughs> as it were, or are they really things that we've discovered mm. Mm. Um, and if there you know, really are these objective moral Obligations and sort of commands to behave certain ways, not to behave certain ways. How do you best explain mm. their existence? Mm. Um, yeah, that's so, so, the so, so, that's sort of where where you look to kind of get yeah. these sorts of things. Um, to yeah. Begin with, yeah. What sort of cupboard in your worldview do you put? You know, which shelf of your worldview do you put that on? Yeah, yeah. Um, if all your shelves are labelled physical things that are non-personal. Mm-hmm. Um, that don't have any intentions, etc., yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, etc., et mm-hmm. to suddenly put a, a moral value that I ought to follow mm-hmm. on that shelf just seems like, you know, that just doesn't fit the label. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's rushing. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you.